hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Melanie Chung, a filmmaker who's worked in documentaries, shorts, and the occasional TV project. She most recently directed all nine episodes of Simu Liu and Natalie Younglai's digital series Hello Again, which is now streaming on CBC Gem. I like the show enough to book episodes for pretty much everybody involved, so, you know, check it out if you haven't already. It's charming as hell. Melanie picked Prisoners, Denis Villeneuve's 2013 thriller starring Hugh Jackman as Keller Dover, a Pennsylvania family man who responds to the disappearance of his daughter and her friend by grabbing the most likely suspect, a local weirdo played by Paul Dano, with the intention of beating a confession out of him. Meanwhile, Jake Gyllenhaal's obsessive detective Loki is conducting his own increasingly weird investigation of the abduction. Villeneuve's Hollywood arrival boasts a hot-button story, an all-star supporting cast, and the bristling intelligence we've come to recognize as his cinematic signature. We do basically spoil the ending right off the top, so if you haven't seen Prisoners, maybe do that first. This is someone else's movie. Uh, it was one of those films that have always, it's always left an impression on me. And I watched it back when it came out in theaters. And I remember it was one of those, it was one of those films that, I mean, there's been plenty of them, but it was a film where it made the cinema experience so profound to me mm-hmm. because, and I feel like that's something that we don't really appreciate as much anymore because we have films available to us on our laptops and our phones on iPads and on our TVs. And it's so easy for us to find a movie at its convenience. Whereas the theater experience is like, you make time to go and do it. And you make this mental sort of um, preparation to go and watch a film. And, and prisoners was one of those films where every layer of filmmaking sort of put you into this world and this universe. And to me, that was, I was sitting there and thinking like, this is the reason why you make films is for this experience. It's, it's visceral, it's emotional, it's mental. Like there's just so much going on and you can't replicate that at home in so many ways, like being with other audience members and hearing them gasp and things like that. Like all of that sort of like layers of just watching a movie in a cinema to me, it was just like prisoners was one of those where it's, it just, I was like, this is the reason why you make movies, to put it up on a screen, get people in a tiny dark room and just let them experience it without any distractions. Yeah, it's one of those films too that the minute you said, listening to, to the other people in the audience respond to it, it, it's the shifting, the backing and forth thing. I saw it with three other people in a screening room up at Warner Brothers uh, because it was a TIFF and they screened it for us early. They were recording us for the cover. And um I think that would have been a very different experience if there had been like 500 people kind of mo- moving back and forth with the plot as every new development comes along. Because um, watching it in silence was, I mean, it's how I see most movies really with a very, very small audience or with these days with no one at all. But it's I, its weird now, like in retrospect, it feels like Villeneuve's most public, popular, engaging kind of picture. It's the one that depends the most on the audience responding mm-hmm. to it because everything else moves towards a chillier, more machine tooled presentation, not in a negative way. It's just that there aren't moments that you gasp at emotionally in Dune or a, maybe Arrival, but that's a sort of a softer, sadder kind of progression. Prisoners is the crowd pleaser. Prisoners is a mm-hmm. movie that actively involves the audience. Um, I interviewed Jackman at the festival and, and he said like, that was his attraction. It's like, it's all about the primal urge to defend your family and how far you'll take it. And for him, the challenge was keeping the audience on side as he gets wilder and more desperate. And like the, I think he was, he couldn't articulate it as such, but I think he was playing with his own charisma and trying to figure out how far along he could bring people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at what point is what point it becomes necessary to let them know that this is not a good person that you know he he's he's yelling about how he's a great person while he's torturing someone and we are there trying to figure out if we should be on his side anymore and it's like it's really interesting um to watch the movie not give you that answer and just withhold so so uh, you know we can we can talk about the ending of a 9 year old movie i think at this point but you know like, how do you feel was it was he justified or does it even matter i, th- I you know what it's it's such a funny thing because i remember watching it the first time in the theater and i had that conflict but also at the same time 
I could feel that justification. And, and that to me was wild, you know, that, that I, because there was just something about, because he was also right. You just knew he was right. And it was that intuitive parent within him that knew he was right. That this man, this Alex, as whatever he's presenting himself to be, this, this sort of, um, um, uh, neurologically sort of sort of held back type character that has like the IQ of a 10 year old like but yet at the same time it felt like there was two sides to him because we also see that moment where he goes Alex goes to take his dog for a walk and then he just yanks the chain and there's that level of violence within him that Keller Hugh Jackman's character yep. intuitively knew was in there and so that's where I felt so conflicted where I'm like but he knows, he knows something. And if your daughter was, and you know, this man knew where your daughter was, how could you not get to that level? You know, like there, it is very primal, but I think that is the whole point is that um, we as humans are so complex, you know, there is no black and white to it and there is no black and white to morality as well. And, and he is also a man of faith and his faith gets tested in so many ways. And I think that's part of many of the themes that 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 Villeneuve is is trying to sort of talk about within the film like he opens the film with a verse and 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 it's brought up multiple times about his faith to God and and all that sort of stuff so his level of morality it's it's almost like is he seen as a godlike figure because he's also a carpenter which is very similar to Jesus and yeah. but yet at the same time he is willing to torture a man but do the ends justify the means? And by the time you get to the film, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't watched it, is that in some way it kind of did because without, without that level of violence that he inflicted upon Alex, he would never have found the answer and he would never have found his daughter. You get the satisfaction of what he was trying to extract. So it's a hard thing to say, um, yes or no about, you know, like I, to me, it's like there, you, I go back and forth. You can't like, there is no, there is no right or wrong answer to it because at the, like upon my second rewatch, I realized that Loki's a terrible cop <laughs> as <Yeah>. well. <laughs> yeah. We haven't talked about that yet. We yeah. were, I, I was sort of trying to figure out when you introduced the Jill and all of it all. Um, mm-hmm. But that is absolutely intentional, right? Like that performance is supposed to be the key that he is nowhere near as qualified an investigator as the civilian, as, as mm-hmm. the guy. And the other thing that, that um, Jackman's character that, that Keller has is that he's a prepper, which I find fascinating because it's a judgment uh, for us from the audience. It's like to see those stockpiles of, of goods that he has and his, his hyper awareness of threat and his constant sense of impending doom. That's, that's a more common characteristic in the U.S., or at least it was after 9-11, which I, I'm, I have a whole thing about how prisoners is very much a, a, a 9-11 allegory in the response, like the idea of an, of an overmatched response to, a, to an inexplicable personal invasion or a feeling of personal assault. Um, that, that is something that I was stunned to see in a major motion picture, like a studio release. I can't think of any other character, hero or victim that's been allowed to have that part of their personality to be, to be a prepper. That's a, like, that's a sociological thing. We just don't see in movies unless it's the bad guy. And that felt intentional mm-hmm. that we're supposed to see him as potentially untrustworthy as a hero. And then I realized, I think that's how Loki is supposed to see him mm-hmm. to immediately dismiss him. and as a crazy and just not pay any attention to him. And that gives Gyllenhaal a thing to make up for as an actor constantly. Like you, you introduce a character whose judgment is really bad as the moral force, as the authority figure. And then you watch him flounder for what an hour and 20 minutes or so, just not get the job done while the other character who is clearly the untested, unprofessional desperate, increasingly irrational hero is getting things done his way. And I, I, I asked Villeneuve about it at the festival, um, whether this, like, whether this is a deliberate commentary, because, you know, as a Canadian making this movie about 
the heartland of America, you have to have some perspective. And I said, is this a 9-11 allegory? Is this like, is this the invasion of Iraq where they got all head up and formulated a case and attacked the wrong country? You know, everybody knew it was Saudi Arabia and, and yet Bush and his people decided to go after uh, and commit incredible, unspeakable atrocities in Iraq. And he just smiled and said, I don't know why you would think that. And it's like, come on, Denis, talk about this. <laughs> But the movie does the talking. I mean, I, I, I'm still convinced in my, you know, in my not so radical middle-aged lefty perspective that that's, a, that's exactly what this movie is saying, that somehow rage can be directed towards an illusion of righteousness, that that Keller Dover is, like he sees himself as the hero and he kind of is because he he's right in this case. Um, but he's also doing things that, violate all of the tenets of his religion and everything he supposedly believes in. And the fact that he's willing to throw it all away instantly to, to save his daughter and a friend's daughter to, to say like for the children. And it's the, it's that standard conservative refrain. Like we're doing this to protect our kids and keep ourselves safe. And this is a movie about what that costs and, mm-hmm. and just how much you have to give away of yourself mm-hmm. and whether or not you know that you're doing it at the time. I find that really interesting. Yeah, because there is a price to pay, and we see it at the end. Mm-hmm. Like he, but and and I think that's what's tough about it is that is that he he knew that that was the price to pay as well. And but again, I think like when you said you you interviewed Jackman that his that his intention was to kind of showcase that primal desperation. And when it comes to going back to the prepping, I think it is such an interesting thing because it was Loki's way to just toss like Keller aside as just being like some crazed person. But I almost feel like that rage, like you're talking about when, as well, that comes from 9-11 is that does the prepping come from this need to find control within your life again? Mm-hmm. You know, because so that prepping is could come from that. But I also think it's, it's possible that it came from um, Keller's... Uh, the death of his father, um, because that was uh, a suicide without no note. So that would, as a, you know, as a young man, I'm sure that left Keller sort of in a tailspin in of itself where he doesn't know the reasons why his father would have killed himself because he was never given anything. Cause he seemed like an upstanding man. He was a guard, you know, like he was a, a moral compass within a, within of itself as a human. And then when that gets taken away without explanation, maybe Keller's, then reaction is to then prep, you know, and prep and prep and prep and then do whatever means necessary to survive. And that, I think that comes to the case when his daughter goes missing is that, okay, you now he, that mode to go do whatever you need to survive comes into play, you know, and the moral compass is sort of non-existent anymore um, yeah. because it's about the mode of survival at that point. Yeah. Yeah. The compass points directly towards being a hero. Like to mm-hmm. to to finishing the quest and, and finding the thing. Like he he's it's an almost it's not a mythical challenge, but it is like it's the mythology of America in a weird way, or the mythology of the family man that we that we tell ourselves um, through through other narratives. And Keller has watched a lot of cowboy movies. Mm-hmm. He doesn't see himself <laughs> as one, but he's acting like a movie hero. Mm-hmm. Um, and there there was a there's an element to Jackman's performance that I find absolutely fascinating and kind of heartbreaking, which is that he knows he's doing it. Mm-hmm. He, he's aware that this is a performance on some level, but he's still committing these atrocities. He's, he's threatening, but then he has to deliver. And there's that scene with Terrence Howard where they have to confront that. And, and Howard is, he's so soft-spoken and is so he's so still against the thing that Jackman is doing. It's just this internal combustion that's happening. And you see it on their faces like this neither of them knows what's going to happen next they just know it's going to be horrible mm-hmm. and one of them is kind of into it and mm-hmm. that's like those are choices those are framing uh framing the conflict and the and the debate of the of the story in ways that are instantly immediately like viscerally felt and then you have the contrast of the mother and son who are just complete wackadoos uh, probably awful people, but you can't be sure. Mm-hmm. And and Paul Dano, who I think that was either the same year, was it the same year it was as, as uh, 12 Years a Slave, where he just happens to be playing the, the worst possible character in both of those movies. And 
you know, he's a sweet, soft-spoken guy. I get why he keeps getting these roles. There's something about his face that makes people want to put a stitch into it or something. Like he just, <laughs> he's, uh, his joke was that like he suffers really well on camera, that people like watching him squirm. Mm-hmm. And he knows it and he leans into it as an actor. But there is also the ambiguity of casting him as someone who's a little soft and a little tender. And maybe he's not. Like maybe he's not the monster that Keller needs him to be. Mm-hmm. And isn't it possible that he is? Because I feel like that that moment when he pulled the leash on that dog, mm. that was- Well, we see it, right? Like we get to see that. But then that's also, it. but Keller also saw that too. So I think that also set something in him that this isn't a good man. And regardless of that soft, I mean, that's why Loki dismissed him entirely is because he is that person. And, and Paul Dano's performance was- brilliant because he knew exactly when to hold back and he knew exactly when to even just a soft sigh almost as if he was going to give them information yeah it was like those little breadcrumbs that he was dropping in that I feel like from a performance standpoint like those are the things that you can never really direct an actor into doing it just has to be visceral within that moment it has to be visceral within being that character because I think by the end of the film you know that Alex is he is two personalities he knows what he's doing you know he knows that that he's willing to put himself in such a state but to continue playing this character of Alex even though we know he's not Alex by the end of the film and it's only when he was pushed physically to the point where he can no longer take it does that come about so meaning you know that he is willing to withhold information and Keller knows this, but Keller I think is also interesting too, is that even though there does seem some like, I wouldn't say joy about it, but he is willing to do whatever is necessary. But also at the same time, you you do see moments of him withholding as well. You know, like when he's about to smash his hand with the hammer instead of smashing the actual head, because those are moments I remember in the theater where we're all just like, holding holding our breaths to see if he's going to go to that point but instead he smashes the sink in frustration and you're just there's that sigh of relief where you're like okay and that's what brings you back onto his side you know is that okay he's not he's not just uh he's not so he's not so down this this path that that it's there's no turning back there is always that element of good within within him that we can see that he doesn't maybe he doesn't want to do this but it's a, t- it's such a, it's again, like you, I could talk about this forever because it goes two ways, you know? Yeah. Well, and in, as an acting challenge, right. They both have to be bluffing, but mm-hmm. not at the same time, never at the same time, which is what's so interesting that Dano's like Alex's little size. I started to think about it as a way of torturing Keller, mm-hmm. not just a way of reconsidering where, you know, you think, Oh no, he can't, he's, he's backing away because he's afraid. It's, well, I think he's enjoying it a little bit. I think he's watching how far he can push this guy because breaking up the sink is a great moment to diffuse the tension in the scene. But it also, like in terms of the plot, it tells us that maybe he's not willing to do this. It's not that he's diverting his anger. Maybe the whole thing is a performance. And then you realize, no, he's not performing. He is, but you know, Keller's not performing, Alex is. And the back and forth on that, which again, I, I complained at the time that it was long, that two and a half hours does feel a long, a little long for this movie. But the more I think about the last 45 minutes or so, I think you just need to draw that out. It needs to be mm-hmm. excruciatingly long because mm-hmm. the tension just keeps going. It doesn't, there are no, you know, there's no release valve. There's no comedy. There are some little fun things in the domestic situations early on where there's interplay and, and banter. And then it all just gets stripped away where there is nothing but just seething rage and, and sniveling terror. And you're trapped in there. You're trapped in the dark with them. You're right. This movie does not work on a, on a phone or, you know, you can't, I, I actually did. I was going to say, you can't watch it on an airplane, but I flew back. I think it was an LA flight and I saw three or four people watching it on the screens. And I remember thinking, really? That's on, this doesn't feel like a movie anyone should be watching without complete immersion. Mm -hmm. Um, At least it would, I think at that time, it wouldn't have been like a cut for, cut for television for, I mean, that'd be 45 minutes long. There'd be no point. Mm -hmm. But the, um, a film like that's that intense really does need to have people trapped in a room with it especially to, to pick up on the nuances. Like yeah. it's so nuanced that 
if you're distracted at any point in time, you're going to miss so much. Cause like going back to that scene where is, is Alex bluffing as well? Is he enjoying pushing Keller to this point, especially with that scene and with the hammer, because mm-hmm. when, as he's smashing the sink, he never flinches at all. So that's where, you know, Alex is also playing a character. He's playing this role. And that's something you would easily miss on a tiny little screen on a headrest in a plane, you know, like to see that sort of nuanced sort of performance. And, and yeah, I also wanted to circle back to what you were saying about, about like how the moms are being portrayed as well within this film. And upon my second watch, and I guess it's like almost, what is it? Almost 10 years later. Yeah, fall 2013. Yeah. yeah, Like, I feel like it's almost frustrating to see how these women were sidelined as moms. And, and to me, I'm like, this is not the way a mom would ever react in this situation. They would just not ball up and hide under the covers. And that to me just kind of like enraged, like the woman in me, I'm like, no, no, you like most mama bears will come out. Like, you know, and like, I think we saw a moment of that with Viola Davis and like, she was trying to play Alex to try and as the mother figure to him to try and get him to open up and and it didn't work out for her but but you could see that there was that I wanted more of that I wanted more of that inner strength of her becoming that nurturing sort of mom to get what she needed out of him like because those are two very different ways of extracting information Keller's is obviously just violence sheer utter chaotic violence and versus Viola Davis's character which is more about like that motherly loving tender okay, tell me what you need. Tell me, tell me what you want. And I will get you what you need. If you can tell me where my daughter is kind of two different approaches. And um, I think the, my frustration by the end was that Keller's chaotic violence is what is what worked and not, and not, and not the moms, you know? So I wish, I wish there was another dynamic where you could see more, more like how a mom would approach the situation versus just this, this angry, angry man on a God, godlike quest. Yeah. Well, and of course, because it's Viola Davis, we know she's capable of so much more as an actor and Maria Bello too. Like they're both, mm-hmm. they're both terrific performers. And, and I think, I think maybe 10 years on, if you remade this film or if you come at it in a, in a, in, a, in another version there would be more for them to do. Like the, the film is so, and maybe that's the other thing about the length too, because Loki, because Loki does so little, but Gyllenhaal is obviously so attractive to Villeneuve that we spend so much time with him. It feels like the real version of this movie or the genesis of this film is the two-hander, is that it's really just the two men in the basement, that it's Keller mm-hmm. and, and Alex. And without the distractions of all the other characters, that would be a much more powerful confrontation but it's also a play so to make it more cinematic you need to expand the world and make it bigger but really the only interest keeps coming back like the 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 screenplay really wants to get back into the basement they're not they're just not interested in what everybody else is doing and so they have to come up with excuses for people not being there and again Mm -hmm. like the whole there is a whole other movie in um in keller and his wife's name is of course his wife's name is grace um (laughs) in keller and grace's disintegrating relationship and Again, we just can't get there. It's it's just not important. But yeah, I would I would almost want to see a parallel feature about the wives, about the these two mothers who have lost their kids or who think they've lost them anyway and don't know what's going to happen next and can't connect to their husbands who are off doing whatever. They just they don't know. They don't even understand what's going on for so much of that story before they're led into it. God, now I'm selling it like an eight-part Netflix series, which is the thing I hate the most <laughs> in the world. Make it a movie, make it short. But but yeah, I, I do remember seeing the cast list for this when it was first, the posters first came up and just like, oh my God, I love everybody on that poster. Let, I can't wait to see what happens. And then realizing how little screen time most of them ended up having, it can't help but feel like a disappointment. But mm-hmm. now I see it, it's just, it's Villeneuve throwing a wide net, casting great actors for every role, no matter how small, but then we end up being dissatisfied by how little they're used. It's mm-hmm. like, it's something he can't win as a, as a, like a structural argument. It's always going to come back to the basement and to whoever's Keller decides is the victim yeah, or his victim. It, it's so true because like the, like the cast is amazing. Like it's like when you, it's just, 
absolutely a list and, and their, their ability to perform is just through the charts. And, and so you want this, you want to be satisfied by their performance and get more from it. But like you said, like, like from a structural point of view, uh, from a storytelling point of view, you can't pack in all of it, you know, but, but I think there's just like maybe some moments that, that maybe could have been, been, um, I I mean, this is me. (laughs) I can't, I can't, I can't, you know, this is, Jenny Villeneuve like there's nothing I could say like he's a master at what he does but I I can't lie also I think like as a woman I want a little bit more from from Rhea Bella's character Grace and I want more from Viola Davis's character as well like I just feel like they're 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 a component to who these daughters are because then we fall into those tropes of where where women are just are just um a means to to carry a story arc for a man you know like it kind of goes back to that trope and I, and I don't want to see that because you know I have such profound respect for for what what Villeneuve is 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 capable of and, and he's such a master like he is uh like I like I absolutely adore his work and and I look to it to you know he's a massive influence of, of the way I view movies and and but I think like yeah like uh, I I get really a little sometimes a bit like oh come on you can't do that to a woman you can't do that to a female character you can't do that because good it comes back to representation as well sure. and how do we portray characters and how do we portray um, people as human and 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 there needs to be at that level of three dimensionality like I feel like there's a lot of complexity within Keller and within Loki and and but we're not but all the other characters feel a bit a bit one-dimensional in a way like this is who they are and it doesn't go beyond that whereas like Keller we can discuss for endless amounts of time whether is he good is he bad is he good is he bad you know but we we're not I'm not getting like the same sort of like conversations out of the other characters which you know yeah yeah but I think that's something in retrospect you know yeah and I think again it's it's more of an issue with the script than the direction like Mm -hmm. the, the movie just doesn't care or rather the story just doesn't care about them at the level that it cares about the, the protagonist and the antagonist. But it's true. You just feel maybe, maybe he was, maybe Villeneuve was hoping that casting strong actors would bring more dimension to mm-hmm. the smaller roles. I mean, it's, 100%, it's yeah. yeah, it's also not, um, I think the other problem I have with it at the time too, was the structure of the plot where it just depends on a few contrivances too many, you know, you can have three, but five feels like a lot. (laughs) Uh, And also the way that it's just, this is probably my own atheistic point of view being an issue, but it's the whole idea that on some level, the underpinning of it is a war on God. Like that's the justification that the bad guys use that, um, that, and yeah. Okay. Melissa Leo, who I think, it's kind of a little much in the film. Like she's, she, she can go really, really big in ways that not every movie can handle. And mm-hmm. I know she's supposed to be like the prime, uh, the prime mover of the, of the, the villain plot. And she's the real monster and all of that, but she's just so twitchy that it, it, I guess it, maybe it's a way of, of, uh, I was going to say it defies uh, logic that Loki wouldn't see through her. But of course, he's not very good at his job. So maybe that's part of it that they're that I just remember the scene with the, the scene with Gyllenhaal and Leo together, where it's just like they're both doing something with their face and every shot. And it's like one of you should probably notice that the other is weird. <laughs> and yet there maybe that's it. They just normalize each other. And so we're supposed to believe that he doesn't figure it out. Yeah, I mean, we could definitely talk about like how Loki is, is he misses so many clues that it's mind boggling. Like, <laughs> you, you feel like you're watching Scream all over again. And you're like, the like, run, run, run. Yeah. <laughs> like, the killer's behind you. Like, that's what I feel like I was doing with Loki the entire movie, because he missed the maze, the necklace on the dead body he found. He missed the connection that, oh, 16 children went missing, but let's not follow up on this. And then he talked to one woman who had a child missing in front of the same house where these two daughters, these two girls disappeared too. But none of this connected. Like, it was just, it's just maddening, you know? And yeah. then taking it back to like Melissa Leo's character, like, yeah, like, it's like, how does he not pick up on how, how bizarre she's behaving and how cagey she is. And also because in order for, I mean, I guess it's a bit of a trope with like these types of characters is that they give too much, but also withhold as well. And, and that weird push and pull game 
to, it feels really obvious that they're, that there's something up, you know, like that they want to give information to sort of play the role that they're innocent, but at the same time, the withholding and caginess is clear indicator that, that no, that's your, that's your suspect right there, you know. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about my new Shiny Things newsletter, a weekly dispatch about physical media, popular culture, and maybe even the odd streaming thing. This week, I wrote about the wild charm of Ray Liotta, the new Criterion editions of Double Indemnity for All Mankind and The Last Waltz, and Paramount's 35th anniversary release of The Untouchables. Subscribe for the price of a DVD rental, remember those? At shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. It's me, I'm writing about movies again. Come check it out. I mean, it's, it's law and order syndrome, right? We've seen more movies than these characters have. So we, and more TV shows where there's a procedural element and we know what to look for and when characters are introduced and all of that, but yeah, she's really leaning into it. <laughs> and, and what's, what's interesting to me about that is the contrast between what she's doing and what Dano is doing, where he's giving nothing away mm-hmm. and just brick walling his way through the entire scene every time. And maybe flirting with, not even flirting with telling the truth, but flirting with giving something away on a level that is predatory. Like mm-hmm. it's just like, there are moments where even though he's the one with the, with the bruises and the bleeding and the, and the, and the terror, he's toying with Keller. And I couldn't reconcile that as the child of what Melissa Leo is presenting. Because mm-hmm. she's so over the top, although maybe it's a defense mechanism. I mean, I'm think I'm overthinking it, but it is one of those choices where the the casting and the performances sort of unbalance whatever is supposed to be going on between the characters. Where you just you could not, I could not see that person coming from a home run by that person, mm-hmm. and and it's weird. But I think the other point too is that Holly Jones, Melissa Leo's character, is just as terrible apparent as Keller Dover, right? Like that, I think that's part of it that doesn't quite land that he's kind of neglectful and absent until he's got the mission of saving his daughter. And she is just awful at everything um, in the same way that Loki is awful at everything, but not in the same way that Keller is. So it just feels like it destabilizes the, whatever um, comparison or conflict is supposed to be generated between them. I don't know. I don't know how you fix that. Mm-hmm. Um given the way the movie has to work, but that's the problem, right? It's sort of bound to a, a, a narrative, the, the, the conspiracy aspect of it or the, the crime aspect of it has to be so under the surface for any of it to work. And we have the time to think about it because of the length of the film. And if it had been more of a headlong race, I think a lot of this would have probably been fine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think just going back to that, can this character of Alex come from the home that is Holly Jones. And I would make the argument that I think it is possible because she seems to love this idea of games, you know, like this, this whole play on, I, you can't leave until you finish all the mazes from front to back of these books. And so it's come to be like, maybe he's come from this home of you always play games and you always hide your, you always kind of keep your, your, your cards close to the heart, which is exactly what Alex is doing when he's playing with, with, um, with, with, with Keller. And, and it's almost like he's gotten so good at playing the game that he's willing to endure that level of pain, you know, till he can't. And that's kind of, maybe he's like, now I fold my hand almost almost moment, you know? Yeah. So he's actually better at playing games than she is at yeah, this point. She could, he's, he's evolved I, I, a survival skill. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the life that he knows. Whereas like Holly Jones's sort of perspective is that she's, like you said, waging the war against God versus Alex Jones or what's his real name? Barry. He's that he's the actual child that got, that was kidnapped, Barry something, right. but he was the first kid, basically. That the Holly replacement had. child, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe he grew up in this home of being of playing games constantly. And so this is the only world he knows. And that's become his viewpoint of the world versus Holly Jones. It's more about, like, you take kids just to just to uh, um, sort of challenge God and challenge faith and all of that sort of 
So it's very two different sort of sort of motivations as to why they do what they do and, and behave the way they behave, you know. Yeah, and how much carnage is is laid out around them as a result. I mean, there's the whole thing with with David Desmalkin's character. He's got it like it's basically an impossible role. He has to be articulate enough to be a suspect, but also completely unhinged or enough to move the plot the way he moves the plot. Um, and I don't. I, I think it's a good performance in an un in an unrealistic sort of just. A, Bob Taylor, the character's purpose is only to move the plot in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. And again, the script just doesn't really care about him. But Villeneuve and, and Tasmalkian have enough space. I think I'm even mispronouncing his name again. That's embarrassing. But the two of them create someone who is genuinely tragic, only mm-hmm. in the rearview mirror, right? Like while you're watching him, he's just a suspect. Um, and it isn't until the second viewing that you can actually see right from the jump that this guy has no idea what's going on. He's completely at sea and, and just being pulled along by whoever's next to him mm-hmm. and how sad that is and how like deeply tragic this whole character's life has been. But again, in the first viewing, he's just a plot device. I, I found mm-hmm. that absolutely fascinating on rewatch to see how much work goes into that. I remember I I had the same feeling because I remember upon the first watch I'm like why did they introduce this character and and was he a red herring and like what was his actual point um, and then with the second rewatch I still I'm still sort of divided I'm like I don't know why like what his actual purpose as from a storytelling point of view is like is he here just to throw us off and to distract Loki once again yeah <laughs> and. But at the same time, we also know that Bob Taylor was also one of the children that that Holly Jones and her husband, I don't think we ever learned that man's name, but he was so. also a victim. But also like he was there to move the story along about the maze and about the necklace and to make all those connections. But he is a deeply tragic character. But we also I never really also got the satisfaction as to why he was doing what he was doing. Like, why did he plant the clothes? Like, what was he doing? Like, is this something that he did as an accomplice? Or did he do this on his own? And for what purpose? And, and if he was so, if he felt so trapped within the maze of his, of himself, again, I think that's why it's called prisoners. He's a prisoner within his own, his own mindset and that he was willing to kill himself to escape it. Like why, why wouldn't he do, why would he do it now versus ever before? Like, so there's, I have so many questions about that character too, that it's just a part of me is just like, maybe you know, the way to trim off time is if we removed that element entirely and kept it, like you said, about, about the two men in the basement, you know, like, is that, is, does that become the, the, the bigger story? But again, if it's a movie that's being released wildly, uh, you know, across for, for like all mainstream audiences, then I guess, yeah, that would be the reason why you need a red herring because it creates another level of tension and it creates another like uh, divergent path for Loki to go on to, to, scream at the screen and be like, no, you're looking in the wrong direction again. Yeah. Or is it him, you know? So it's, yeah, it goes, it goes, I, I, I don't know how I feel about Bob Taylor because yeah. I, I feel unsatisfied by, by that, by, by his character as well. Yeah. It's weird. I mean, he's, you're right. He's there to present evidence, but just to have it overlooked at the same time, which is kind of frustrating because we are, we are immediately uh, told not to pay attention to him. Mm-hmm. by the film by the by the the movie as the narrative is unfolding because how you watch this movie is also as is as important as how you figure out the plot but i think that's and and that's the thing that's so weird and maddening and frustrating to me is that i cared about the guy the second time through when i didn't the first time and and that's just about villeneuve more than the screenplay i think mm-hmm. just his decision to not cast a throwaway, not just make it a character type that we can immediately discard. Um, you know, there are a dozen actors you cast in roles like that. They do this sort of thing all the time. And he picked someone who's vulnerable and sad and just kind of broken in a lot of ways that you wouldn't expect from someone who's not going to be present for the rest of the movie. And it works because it's shocking, but it's, a weird puzzling choice. It's like, um, I'm trying to think, like it's, it's sort of what he does in Sicario where he uses Emily Blunt's character as the pivotal character. She's our way into the story, but she's not the lead. 
Mm-hmm. And it takes a long time for the story to actually reveal, for the movie to tell us what's going on and who's in charge and who's driving the story. And it's part of it and it's 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 organic and it's great because it happens so quickly. But Prisoners also needs to sit in its tension. And so I think it just, that's, that's the running time question again. It just gives us more, it gives us a little too much time to, to wonder why we're seeing what we're seeing. And maybe that's it. The whole movie is about people who, are searching for evidence and divining information and science from things. Even the bad guys are ultimately the bad guys because they are kind of cartoonish villains. Once their whole plan is revealed and once their motivations are exposed, the Joneses are religious fanatics as much as Keller and taking direction from the world in the same way he does, which is just making intuitive leaps and deciding that this thing is the only thing you can do except that their thing is monstrous and horrific and born of a snake handling mistake, which again, like it it goes back to these other weird American religious traditions Mm -hmm. that tie to prepping somehow. Yeah. Snake handling gospel churches, revival churches are still a thing. And it's a thing that no one talks about because uh, it's a thing that no one talks about in popular narratives, because on some level, everybody knows it makes them look silly. (laughs) Uh, the same way that preppers just aren't discussed in mainstream American entertainment. Mm-hmm. And here's here's a movie that says, oh, yeah, both of these things are real and they're weird, but they're also part of the fabric of these people's lives. Mm-hmm. And it's not commenting on how weird it is. It's commenting on how they don't know how weird it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And I find that fascinating, too. Like, this is an outsider's vision of America uh, in a movie made in Georgia that is as well, I, get, I was going to say it's as American as apple pie, but of course the lead is Australian. So there's that too. But the outsider aspect is really fascinating because you're getting a movie that is like it, it has the feel of an American thriller, but it's really weird. And it's really aware of that. It's aligned mm-hmm. to weirdness. And again, that brings us back to detective Loki, who is Jake Gyllenhaal just giving the most eccentric performance of a very eccentric career in the middle of a mainstream studio thriller Mm -hmm. and having no one comment on it, which I do find fascinating. Like Keller doesn't have any patience for this guy uh, because he sees right through him. He can tell Mm -hmm. he's not going to be of any help and he's right. Kind of. I, and that's the thing that I find I, I still wrestle with that as well. It's like, are, are we supposed to buy into Loki and and I don't know if if it's if it's Jake Gyllenhaal's performance or is this the character in terms of like because he has he has a tendency to have this sort of like shit eating grin and like and like smirking in such a weird way where you don't know if he's being patronizing or not and you don't know if it's if it's is this just like like a part of Jake Gyllenhaal and and, and the way he the way he happens to look when he smiles or is he actually trying to be like sort of this patronizing um whatever sir okay 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 kind of kind of type of character so I kind of go back and forth with that because um he kind of gives Keller like these weird smirks sometimes and I'm like how could you not see how you're egging him on to get to this level of anger because you are sort of dismissing him and 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 how do you dismiss the parent of of someone who just lost their child you know so the that sort of a like the the bedside manner of a good cop who's supposed to help help find this child this missing child doesn't seem to be there so I was I kept going back and forth where where is he just really eccentric and 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 also at the same time he's clearly obsessed with symbols in some sort of context like he has them tattooed on his on his hand I think like at the end like there's this one shot where he's looking down at the maze that Bob Taylor drew while in holding and on every every knuckle there i think it's i think it's uh the astrological um um symbols on his on his fingers and then also the way he's introduced he's talking about the chinese zodiac and and who's what so like he has a thing for symbols so how did he not notice the maze (laughs) the maze necklace i remember like as soon as we see the body in that priest's priest's basement like it's giant it's massive like how does how does your brain not pick up on those things so I like again I don't know if it's it's all like is he just a very eccentric character but also we're introduced to him as being a star detective like he hasn't lost or he hasn't he doesn't have a single unsolved case and if we're meant to believe that and then see this performance as 
<laughs> it's just, it just doesn't add up. So I'm sort of left wrestling with those questions as well. Like, is it just, again, is it, is it just maybe like some missed opportunities within the screenplay or are we meant to, are we meant to question the intelligence of Holly Jones and Alex Taylor, you know, or Alex Thomas, whatever the character's yeah. name is. Paul. In Dennis. comparison to this guy. It's, yeah. it's, it's weird, right? Because Gyllenhaal and Villeneuve immediately also made Enemy, where mm-hmm. he's doing completely different things. They, they, they obviously know, each knows what the other is capable of and what they want. And so I can't, like, I can't conclude that this isn't the performance that they both wanted to have in this movie, that this is the guy that maybe the, maybe the thing we aren't told is that he's only had two cases. He solved those, but he's just, he's not good at this yet. And he's, he's And this, and I I suppose in this one, he'll solve this too. So he'll get credit and just keep going. Maybe that's it. He's just a a mildly overconfident uh, detective who just happens to luck into the, the right answers, or maybe crime is simpler than we think it is, but he's got this unearned confidence that I found really interesting because Gyllenhaal, if if nothing else, he knows how he reads on mm-hmm. camera. Like he knows how he comes off in movies, and and you can always tell when he's in something he doesn't believe in, like that Prince of Persia movie, or mm-hmm. or just the stuff that he did before he became Jake Gyllenhaal, the media like, sensation. Like Bubble before Boy. he, yeah, well, before he took control of his image, I guess. But yeah, Bubble Boy is a big one. Um, but that was like two years after Donnie Darko, where he gives this incredible, contained, psychologically complex, vulnerable, sad performance. I just saw that again a few months ago, and it holds up. Like it's it's impenetrable, but in a in a way that feels absolutely designed and intentional. And what he's doing here is, I don't think we're supposed to like him, and I'm not sure we're supposed to root for him. But the movie is using him as a convenient tool to get away from the the basement to like to get out and and mm-hmm. tell another story and show us all the things that Keller doesn't see. And I think maybe that's supposed to destabilize the scenes in the basement, the scenes between Keller and Alex, where we're supposed to wonder what's happening and who's right and who's wrong. What Loki finds, even though he doesn't notice it himself is supposed to be helping us build our own case in a way that like, if you want to extend the prisoner's metaphor a little bit further, we're prisoners of the narrative and we have to build our own answer. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so interesting that you say that because that's exactly how I felt like watching it. Not as in like a, in a bad way, like I'm a prisoner to this theater, like yeah. this movie theater and I can't get out. It's more like if I wasn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel these visceral feelings, you know, within this contained sort of universe. And, and I think that's really fascinating in of itself. And, and I almost wonder too, like, is, is like, who is truly the protagonist then too? Because the, they're both morally, uh, they both morally toe the line. You know, and so and we also don't know who to root for because we know Loki's sort of mucking up this case. And we also know that Keller is not doing this in the most righteous way. Yeah. So it's like, who do you actually root for in this film? You know, you're kind of left wondering with all these questions. And I think that's also the brilliance of it, too, is that is that um, if we were to look at this overall, like in a very big overarching sort of way, is that there is no clear hero ever, is there? You know, like there is a complexity to that, you know, like like the reasons why, like what motivates us to do the things that we do, it's never just one thing, you know, and and movies often teach us that. Like if you go, if you break down a, a Disney movie, you know, the it's it's the motivations are very always clear cut because they have to be, you know, they have to make it very in some ways um very simplified, but still very engaging because it's for a younger audience. But like for movies like this, maybe that's the whole point of what of what Villeneuve is also trying to say is that there is no there is no one way or one moral compass to abide by because I think the play against Keller and and Holly Jones like they are both in the same situation they've both lost a child but they're both people of faith but they went in they're on different ends of the spectrum and and what drove them to each end is not you can't say it's the same thing. Like it's technically the same thing, but there's still people of faith. Like, like Keller in, in the hole, finding the whistle, he prays, you know? So he still has that, he still has that faith to God. Whereas Holly Jones, she's lost her faith to God 
upon losing her child. So it's not the act of losing their child themselves that will then equate to the same exact outcome. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, they're both driven by righteousness or rather self-righteousness, right? Like Holly has a, a, a structure that she has embraced to refute her beliefs. The ones she used to hold are now vile and repugnant, and therefore she has to turn on them and destroy them. And Keller has to double down on on everything he already believes. And I guess you could say it works for both of them, but it doesn't work so well for Holly. <laughs> like it, I mean, it sustained her for a few decades, but that's just creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that and the idea that they're both and Loki as well, because everything he's doing is coming from a place of misinformation and and just and conviction. Like he's he's just as committed to his belief structure, I suppose, because he believes he can solve everything. He believes in himself. He doesn't believe in God mm-hmm. um, to, to solve the problem that's directly in front of him and, and be the, the hero of his own story. But all three of these characters are just floundering into the next step. Like they don't really, they all, they've all convinced themselves they know what they're doing, but not a single one of them has a plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess Holly wild. has a plan. <laughs> Yeah, she kind of always did have that plan. Yeah, Yeah. because it's also like what, like, I guess like her plan was to ultimately, well, yeah, I guess like she was trying to kill and the little girl um, with the syringe right when, right when Loki found, found her. But yeah, I don't know. There's still so many questions that I I find really fascinating. And I think the themes are, are, I think there are so many like themes and symbolism and, 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 and things that you can kind of like discuss endlessly. Like I was saying, like, I, I, uh, I, watched a whole bunch of like video essays and I kind of dived back into interviews about the movie with, with Dennis Villeneuve. And then I had to stop because I'm like, no, I think it's just like, we're, some people are just like overlooking things and also just putting too much weight in other things and things like that. But like, I think one of the things that again, going back to the theater experience that I, I feel like no one's really talking about is this theme of, of silence and how, how the silence is actually kind of also what saved, um, Keller at the end you know like I think like there's this whole resounding um like the way this it was sound designed and and so based off of like you know Villeneuve's direction like to have this really quiet sort of moody soundtrack where it's not overbearing and and instead we're lost in scenes of complete silence and just a voice like when we see when we see the forensics team um going through through the the RV like it's just layered with 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 uh, Loki's um, sort of questioning with with the uh, with with Alex Thomas and and it's just dead silence and I don't think we talk about that and like how important that theme actually is you know to to the overall arching story and how if it weren't for that silence because I think that's also part of Loki's character is that he's able to sort of see things within the silence because that's how he I think I mean people still debate this at the ending but like saving Keller, so to speak, is within that silence. He can hear that whistle. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's also the only time he, even though he doesn't know it's Keller, it's the only time he listens to Keller, right? Like, it's, mm-hmm. the, fi- it's the only moment that those two characters communicate, and it's completely one-sided for each of them. Mm-hmm. You know, Keller is blowing the whistle. He doesn't know who's going to hear it. And Loki hears it, but doesn't know who's blowing it. And I, I want to say that's some grand statement on America, but I'm pretty sure it's just a good ending. Like, it's just a great image to go out on, but it feels like it should mean more, doesn't it? It feels mm-hmm. like it's got something. I feel, and I think this, I, it's really interesting to me that this, the ending is still debated because I think there were some interviews that came out where both the screenwriter and, and, and Villeneuve said that they did film the, the, like they filmed the extent of the, of the, of the final scene of, he does discover Keller in the like hole. a rescue. Yeah. Yeah. And, but they decided to sort of cut that out. And I think that, I think that was really smart to do because we don't need that. It's just, it's just, it's just more information that, that we don't really need to sit through, especially in an already a film that's two and a half hours long. Yeah. It's more than we need at that point. But I also find it really interesting how it's debated, whether did he get, like, is this something that, that like, I think I, I remember the debate was that is Loki hearing things and is Keller actually there? But to me, I feel like it is definitive. Like I, I, I left that. I left the movie feeling like no, for sure, Loki rescues Keller. And I think it go, it's such an interesting note to say that it's the only time they're actually listening to each other. Because I never actually thought of that, and it's so true. It is the one time that they listen to each other, and maybe that is a statement on on you know 
on a bigger statement within the film is that maybe the only time you can actually hear each other is when you stop speaking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, it's definitely a theme throughout the entire picture. People just <laughs> yelling at each other and not hearing because, you know, because uh, Keller and, and Alex never really communicate. Mm-hmm. There's just Keller telling him what he wants, which is for him to confess and Alex telling him just whatever he can say. And it's never a confession, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just, it's just, there's, there's, there's directional shouting, but there's not a conversation going on, which mm-hmm. again, the both of those actors are terrific at that. And that's the reason I keep coming back to the film as working because if you boil it down to the conflict, to the essential conflict, which is someone wants something and someone else has it, but won't give it up. That's like the, the soul of drama and you mm-hmm. add child endangerment and all the other stuff that's built into the script. And it's really quite gripping. It really is because that's how they, like that, the creation of that, te- of that, of that tension is through that breadcrumbing that, that, that uh, Alex gives uh, yeah. um, uh, Keller, you know, it's like, it's just these little bits of pieces that don't seem to make any sort of sense, but they actually lead him to his daughter, you know, like the little things of like, they only cried. <laughs> they only cried when I left them. Like right. that, that moment was just like, Loki, what are you doing? Where have you been? Like, what is going on? You know, like that's when you, and then that's, that's kind of like the moment where, where a bit of a switch flips where you're like, okay, you're on Keller's side now. Like you, you know, he's right. Like we all heard it. We all saw it. And the same, like the other things that he says, like, like uh, what Alex says in, in that basement is like, uh, he talks about like through that pipe hole, he's like, I'm not Alex. I'm not Alex. I'm not Alex. And if only Loki and Keller could put the two pieces of information together, <laughs> you know, Loki would then be like, oh yeah, that could be the kid that I talked to, like the, the kid that disappeared. And I talked to their mother, like just a day ago, kind of, yeah. you know, but <laughs> so it is like frustratingly that you just want these people to talk to each other, not at each other, but it's also the breadcrumbing is what keeps us engaged and what keeps us like in it, you know, like fully invested in it because you want to root for these characters. You want there to be a good outcome because of the child endangerment. Yeah. I don't know. There are just so many layers where you can just be like, Oh my God. It's like, and maybe this is the puzzle. This is the maze in of itself is that we are in this maze of questions and wanting to seek answers, but we're never going to get the answer because I think they also said that, in the maze that Bob Taylor drew in the holding cell is that there was no exit. And that's basically us right now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's, we're all, this is a cry for help from everyone. (laughs) Uh, And my exit strategy is to ask about how this relates to your own work, which is how the podcast always ends. And I have no idea. I've been trying to figure out, is there anything in hello again? I can't really see a connection. I mean, it is people who want things and can't have them, but only in the, the most threadbare version of that. Does it, does it connect to prisoners? And does have you have you used anything from prisoners or or uh, incorporated it, borrowed it, outright stolen anything that Vilna does in your own work? I think more from just the way I view things through a camera lens. You know, I try sure. to. I mean, and what like I like uh, obviously like this movie came out many, many, many years ago before I even was introduced to Hello Again. And I think he, I think it's films like his that have just always given me this, this desire to tell stories through as an an authentic sort of viewpoint and use camera, like the camera lens through it. And that's what I bring to Hello Again. So I know they feel like completely different things and, and they're just very like sort of, sort of, uh, um, different viewpoints, but I think for me, it's that frustration of of these characters is that is that no one is one dimensional, no one is two dimensional. You know, like there's just so much complexity to who these people are, and and I think Prisoners is one of those films that left me with that feeling is that you know there's so much more um, of how of what motivates us to do what we do and. And that's the case when it comes to Hello Again as well. Like you can't approach these characters. I mean, again, it's very, you know, like there are things about it that are just supposed to be fun and fluffy, but the, the, the stuff between his dad to me was the part that uh, really drew me into the story. You know, like there's so many fun elements, like, yes, doing a rom-com is always going to be fun. Doing some comedy is going to be fun. And, and also like throwing the twist of, of, um, of, of multi universes and 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 going back in time and all that sort of stuff is fun. But what always kept me going back to the story was was uh, the relationship between between um, Jaden and his father, because he had an opportunity to 
essentially redo it in many ways. And, and, and he thinks he knows what motivates him. Jaden believes the loss of Avery is what motivates him to find quote unquote love and, and to get out of this time loop, but that's not it. It's, it's deeper than that. And, and we, I, and again, going back to like, just the way I sort of view the world is that there's just so much more that what motivates us and pushes us and going back to like the differences between Keller and Holly Jones is that they both had the same event change their lives, but they go in different directions in many ways. I can kind of, you can kind of place that into hello again, is that he had this event, the loss of Avery changed his life, but he's on this quest. Jaden's on this quest to just he thinks that like the only way to fix his life out of the time loop is to just continually pursue Avery to the point where he realizes that that's not actually the way that's not the exit out of the, out of the maze, you know, it's something else. It's something deeper. And I feel like we, those are parts of us that we don't go to. And it's always the deeper parts of us that actually motivate us. But those are the scary parts that we don't talk about, you know, because it's easy for us to just, kind of put something surface level it's like oh it was this breakup that happened and yes of course breakups are traumatic you know we've all had our heart broken and they can severely damage us and and leave us with the whole new impression of the world but there are also those things that we don't talk about and we see that with Jaden. he never wants to talk about his dad so there's something deep there you know and 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 it it also questions his ability to love you know it changed his ability to love and that's why he wasn't able to love Avery the way she needed to be loved and he also wasn't able to love himself the way he needed to love himself to get out of his own maze you know so I think like maybe those would that would be the the, sort of like the parallels to it you know but I wouldn't say like when I (laughs) picked prisoners it was meant to you know (laughs) reflect that yeah, yeah yeah definitely like overlap but I think that's the human condition is that at the end of the day it's like it's films like prisoner that makes me question the human the human condition and, and and what motivates us and why we do what we do and whether we are good or bad and are those words that we can even use in our in our lexicon and is it fair to ever label anyone as one or the other what I'm taking away myself from hello again is that the key to unlocking that maze emotionally is vulnerability, which is something that Jaden is bad at and becomes better at over the course of the story. But learning to listen and learning to, you know, accommodate other people is kind of also the point of prisoners, which no one ever does. Mm -hmm. Vulnerability is only shown in blood. Like people are weak. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's, that is the the movie's version of vulnerability. And again, it's, it's the script's version, not the director's perspective, because Jackman is showing a different kind of vulnerability in in Keller's terror at the loss of his child. And Dano is doing something with, with like a a sort of a brick wall against vulnerability, like hiding his own agenda, his own weakness, his own physical fears and, and, and whatever else is, is getting to Alex. We don't get to see that because of the, the wall he puts up. But those are like vulnerability and honesty are the two traits that you almost never see mm-hmm. in anything other than a romantic comedy's climax, because there's just no room for them in thrillers and there's no room for them in most dramas either, even though that's what we think, that's what filmmakers think they want from, from this stuff. We're not seeing it as much because it's just hard to depict and it requires the audience to be fully invested, which I think just doesn't happen as much anymore. And the, and the, the fact that Hello Again makes time for it, I think, is something really special. And and again, it's it's hard to realize on screen. It's hard to see it in in a performance because so often we just cut away from that and move to the next scene, right? Mm-hmm. But but and even within the the web series structure, which which I know was imposed on the script after the fact, it was pitched as a feature originally. Um, you have that. You found room in a ten minute episode to have even just twenty seconds of reflection in a character's eyes. It makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. And it's very true what you're saying. It's like rom-coms have that ability to give us that time and space to reflect and admit to things that is the very vulnerable part of us. And that's why we, so many people love rom-coms is because you get to see it because, you know, there's always that confession of love and, and that's what draws us into rom-coms because, you know, a confession of love is is a very vulnerable place to be. Whereas like movies like the like Prisoners, like it's a different level of vulnerability, but we don't want to see it because it's too scary to to look at, you know, because it's, it's a type of vulnerability that 
it comes, it makes us come face to face with the parts of us that feel ugly and that seem ugly. Whereas like, it's easy to digest in a rom-com because it's always about love. And and so it feels a lot nicer to sort of, yeah. sort of see it within that, you know? So that's why we get, it's, it's, that's why like, I, I, I don't like it when people sort of like overlook rom-coms as just being like fluff material. I'm like, there's so much stuff there that is, we, we don't want to like overlook because love is vulnerable and, and getting into the deep sides of what makes us feel, feel afraid and and can't confront who we are. I mean, like, I think we see that within Jaden and his relationship with his dad. Like the reason why he couldn't get out of this time loop is because he's trying to cover it up with these surface level things of, of being with someone, you know, it's like the equation of love is let's just get a relationship because I think like in the society, that's a lot of what we're taught is like, you get, you, you get married, you have kids, you have the picket, the picket white fence and you get the dog and suddenly life is beautiful, you know, like, like that will solve all the problems. Yeah. And so Jaden is on that quest to find that love and then move on through life, you know, do all those things. And, and, but that doesn't cover up the wound of the failures of his relationship with his father. And it's, until he can go into that darker, uglier side of him, can he break the loop, you know, and, and break out of the cycle. And it's not the marriage. It's not the wife. It's not the kids. It's not the house. It's not the dog. That's going to solve that wound. You know, it's, he has to confront it ultimately. And I think that's, again, going back to prisoners, that's what, you know, they all have to do. They have to confront themselves in order to get to the end, you know, like Keller has to confront the ugliest part of himself in order to find his daughter and, and sacrifice himself to the, to the flame, so to speak, you know, and that's kind of what Jaden had to do. He had to give up Avery to, he had to sacrifice Avery to go into the flames of, of confronting his relationship with his dad in order for it all to sort of just be released because yeah, I mean, like there's some things that feel a bit surface level that we try to cover up, you know, and I think that's what he was doing a lot of the times and that's why the loop wasn't working. And again, like going back, I mean, to me, that's what drew me to, to the, the series is, is the relationship with the dad. I feel like that was like the nugget that kept me going with the storyline, you know, to, to keep digging into that moment. And so I needed that space, I think on, on, on film to see that because uh, it's just to me that's just what blew it all open is is finding that the part that feels scary and ugly to tackle and and I think like as a director and as a storyteller those are the parts that I'm always trying to sort of like poke at is like the parts of us that we don't want to we don't want to talk about and we don't want to go into because it's scary you know my thanks to Melanie Chung and I'll remind you that Hello Again is now available to watch in its entirety on CBC Gem. It's lovely. You should check it out. Thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did. Melanie doesn't do much with her Twitter account, but you can follow Hello Again at Watch Hello Again, all one word, and you can find Prisoners on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on Netflix, Craven Stars in Canada, and Hulu in the U.S., and available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast, the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out that newsletter I mentioned earlier, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I've had COVID and you don't want it. I'll see you next time.